Hey friends, today's guests are guitarist and lead vocalist Luke Esterkin and bassist Greg Geldner of the Marin County, California rock band Stroke Nine. Together, we break down the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the smash hit single, Little Black Backpack, taken from their 1999 album, Nasty Little Thoughts. I don't recall an episode here on Krista Makes a Podcast where everything hinged on one song, and I mean everything. Luke and Greg both mentioned that the track was demoed numerous times over the years, had been a live staple and a hit amongst their fans, was previously recorded for their indie record, and it was this song that got them signed to Universal Records. This certainty that the song was a hit was shared by everyone in the band, managers, fans, and label executives. Getting the final mix back only solidified this overall feeling, and the song went on to become one of the biggest hits in 1999 at Rock Radio. The guys were both very vocal as to what producer Jerry Harrison brought to the table with his track. And I gotta mention the time signature changes in this song. They're odd, yet work together effortlessly and really give the song its own vibe. So for all this and a whole lot more, stick around. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Well, hey guys, how's it going? Hi, how are you? It's going great. Fantastic. We got Luke and Greg. We're going to get uh, ganged up on here. We're getting a twofer here on Krista Makes a Podcast. So uh, where are each of you guys right now? I'm in my car in Petaluma, California, which is about a half an hour north of San Francisco. Um, and I'm on my way to meet Greg because we're having a, a, an in-person meeting today about some stuff. Where are you, Greg? I'm in Petaluma as well, so waiting for Luke. Yeah, this Luke and I actually have several jobs together. We've we've worked together. Stroke Nine has been 35 years now, but we've also we worked at a liquor store together. Now we work in tech together, and there's a couple other endeavors that we we do as well. So we're constant. That's like my producer and I, I can't get away from him. So is the Phoenix Theater still in Petaluma? We're going to be actually right across. The, that's where our, the co-working space we're going is basically across the street from the Phoenix. Yeah, it's still there. Still kicking. Right on, right on. Well, a little background for the listeners. Uh, these guys, Stroke Nine, uh, you formed in 1990. I want to talk a little bit about this. I guess you guys formed due to a rock band class. And I had one of those in my high school, too. It was called Instrumental Techniques. And it's Basically, we're all the delinquents that didn't want to be in history and sociology. They went to kill an hour and you got to play guitar and drums, right? Yeah. Our high school, we went to high school a little south of here in a town called San Rafael that was allegedly bohemian, but it was more college preppy. But it didn't have like a normal jazz band or orchestra or or symphonic band or anything like that. But we had a rock band. And so um, we all joined it maybe junior year and just did covers, did a lot of classic rock, did Bowie and Zeppelin. And we actually did a suicidal tendencies song, which was bizarre. And, um, <laughs> and out of that, we just, you know, the people who were more into it sort of gravitated to each other. And that was 
me and Luke and John, our guitar player, and this guy, Steven, who was our original bass player. And once it ended and once high school ended, we're like, let's just keep doing it. And so that's sort of how we fell into Stroke Nine. It's, yeah, it started in a class, which is funny. We gave him a gold record. Uh, once we got our gold record, we had him put it up in that room. That's awesome. Well, you guys released two independent albums in 93 and 95, and then you got signed to Universal. And uh, take us back to that time period. Did did you get signed off the back uh, of any of the songs uh, from the record Nasty Little Thoughts, like Little Black Backpack? Was there a demo for that? I searched. I couldn't find one. We wrote Little Black Backpack, I think, in 95, and we recorded it many many times uh the the main kind of demo version that you can find online is on our album bumper to bumper So that was kind of the original version that we recorded, and we recorded that uh, in a very um, (laughs) DIY fashion where we were like in a little room and we had a microphone in the room and everybody was sitting on a porch outside of the room and we were kind of like trying to multi-track it. We had a, we rented a couple ADATs, if you remember ADATs back in the day. Of course. um, And a little tiny little board and we, we recorded it and, and we made this full full-length album called bumper to bumper and we were also playing around a lot at the time in san francisco and up and down california and you know that was kind of the song that every time we played it people would instantly react to we were playing to a lot of people who had never seen us of course in in little clubs and bars and stuff um so that song kind of always had this uh instant feedback you know that we were given as a band and yeah go ahead greg take it from there yeah so we recorded it for Bumper to Bumper, played it a lot, and then we we hooked up with a woman named Nadine Condon. Is that her last name? And yeah. she was a BMI rep up in San Francisco, and so she put us on some showcases. And we had some friends at, at Bill Graham Presents and stuff like that, so we got to sneak on to some really good opening slots. Like, we got to play upstairs at Tom Petty when he did that, like, 20 20- night run and stuff and so then once the record labels started coming around we lied and we said we sold half a million copies of that bumper to bumper that album with the first little black backpack (laughs) when we probably sold 200 or something i mean you know it was it wasn't bad it was like 500 but um it was not half a million (laughs) and so um so yeah and then we demoed it again then once it was once we got the record label, we went in with a guy named Phil Steer into his studio in San Francisco called uh, Toast and demoed it again with him. And then you know once we got to the album, we probably recorded it. Yeah, probably like five or six times, like legitimately. I'm gonna have to go look for that demo because I love listening and comparing and contrasting. Do you do you recall if there was an evolution with the demos? Did did the change lyrically? Did the arrangement change? Just going way back, the the song originally was a different song that was fully, I think, in four four, and then it was kicking around, and the chorus might have been the same, but the verse was straight, and then 
when we got together in like 94 or something like that, Satellite had just come out. Satellite in my eyes like a diamond in the sky. How I Satellite, you know, is isn't an odd t- Dave, Dave Matthews satellite, and so then that's when the verse went to sort of a six-eight waltzy feel, and it did that, and then it had this bonkers bridge that is in a like almost double time four-four, and it has this raging guitar solo and stuff like that, and then and that's on that's on. There's a version of that on our album called. Hidden Treasures. Hidden Treasures. It goes to this wild 4-4. Then it goes back to a slower 4-4. So it had three different time signatures and feels in the thing. And with somebody, we worked out that for the bridge guitar solo, we were just going to stay in the chorus 4-4 and not do this kind of proggy, like jammy uh, bridge, which was, it was ridiculous. It was fun to play live, but it didn't work on the album. That was like probably the most significant thing that changed on that song. And I don't remember who we did that with. Well, a couple a couple other things I wanted to, to discuss before we jump into the song. Uh, it was The album was produced by uh, Jerry Harrison and Rupert Pine. Uh, Jerry uh, is from the Talking Heads. He's produced live, Crash Test Dummies, no doubt. Rupert Hines, an English producer, he produced everyone from Tina Turner to Rush, Stevie Nicks, The Fix. And, you know, uh, the, these guys' uh, records speak for themselves, but it almost seems like a little bit of an odd pairing for a late 90s radio rock alternative band. How'd you guys get hooked up with these guys? The label asked us to kind of like make a dream list of producers. Uh, and we were super into um, like the stuff that Jerry had been doing. We were obviously into the Talking Heads. And then we loved how like that Crash Test Dummies record sounded. And we started listening to other stuff that Jerry had done, like live. And we were just like, sonically, this stuff is killer. Um, and so, and he's also a local guy. He lives in Marin County, where we live in the Bay Area. And so he was kind of like at the top of our list. There were other guys at the top of our list, too. Um, I can't remember exactly who they were right now. But anyway, Jerry was like, the label called him and, and he was in between projects. And he was like, well, I've got like a few weeks. I'll, I'll commit to doing six songs with these guys. And he picked the six songs that we did with him off of a list of, I think we had about 15 demos or so. There were a few songs that didn't make the record. but And then so we needed like another producer to do these other six songs. And our A&R person, Jolene Cherry, um, was friends with Rupert. And she was like, how about this guy, Rupert? He's great. And, you know, once we saw his track record, uh, I'm like... those fix albums were kind of like kind of my favorite albums when I was in maybe like seventh or eighth grade. Oh yeah. And so, yeah. And so once I saw that, I was like, yeah, let's just do this. And so we went to LA and, and did six songs with Rupert at a place called Royal tone, which was, which was great. Had Rupert and Jerry ever worked together before? Because, you know, alone, um, it, it's not an odd pairing, but it seemed kind of odd that these two were together working on this project. Had, had they worked together previously? 
I don't believe so, no. I don't know that they even ever met. I'm trying to... Th- I think there was one time I remember being in the room with both of them. But no, they... I mean, they knew of each other, but I don't think they knew each other. There was no, like... I don't think we did anything like, here's what the album's going to sound like, and we're all going to match that sound. I think Jerry went first, and so... If you know, you know, you can tell a little bit which which song is which, but it all came together well. But there was no, like, meeting of the producers to sort of be like, this is what the whole album vision is like or anything like that. Well, a couple more things. Little Black Backpack peaked at number six on the U.S. Modern Rock chart and number 39 on the U.S. Top 40 Mainstream chart. The Nasty Little Thoughts album went platinum and... Altogether, you guys have released eight studio albums, the most recent being Calafrio, which was released in January of 2020. And before we go any further, I just want to ask again, was Jerry more of the main producer in the studio with you guys the whole time? Or or it kind of seems that way. Or was was Rupert there when he wasn't there? Yeah, so we, we did completely separate sessions. Jerry and Rupert were never together in the studio at the same time. So we did six tracks with Jerry and then Jerry went off and, you know, did something else. And then we went to, and that was in the Bay area and at a studio called the plant in Sausalito. And then we went down to LA with Rupert and his engineer. And so it was like completely different teams. Okay. Do you remember who tracked little black backpack though? Jerry and, and Carl Durfler, uh, was yeah. Jerry and Carl, Carl is his engineer. Who's amazing. And, um, yeah, so we did, we did little black backpack with Jerry. Was the song cut to tape or Pro Tools? It was cut to Pro Tools and tape. <laughs> okay, so you went to tape and then, and then bounced over to do editing and Pro Tools? Yes. Okay, because that's right in that time period. It's right on the cusp. My band made a record in 98, and we were one of the first like 10 records, I think, that ever used uh, Auto-Tune. <laughs> uh-huh. So that's right right around that time. But this uh, this track's almost 25 years old, and it sounds awesome. You guys should be really proud. It's I think it sounds amazing and still holds up today. Thank you. Yeah, I mean it was full blown studio action. Like we chose the plant as as Luke was saying, which is in Sausalito, you know, very famous old studio where you know Fleetwood Mac and and um, sitting Otis Redding sitting on the dock of the bay and Journey and like everyone's recorded there. Metallica did the Black Album there and. Um, and so on our first bumper to bumper, which was our independent one we made ourselves, we had a couple of buddies who were interns there and they mixed that album in one of the back studios at night. And so we're like, and we got to, you know, poke around in, in the main rooms every once in a while. And Luke, didn't you intern there or something like that once, or you had some connection there? I did. Yeah, I interned there. Um, my the, the best story about interning there was there was a young girls band called Girls Time recording there when I was interning there. And I think I was probably, I don't know, 17 or 16. And the singer, the main singer of that band was Beyonce Knowles. Oh, wow. And um, so she was in there, yeah, recording with her producer at the time. And... Uh, she was probably about, I don't know, I feel like she was eight or nine. And that was a pretty cool thing to witness. 
Yeah, that that's awesome. Well, I want to jump into the song now, guys. It's three minutes and forty three seconds, and I, I don't recall was it was it Luke or was it uh, Greg that said this song had a six eight feel? I said the time signature was in three four, but sometimes I get those two confused. <laughs> I and in, in in some instances people will say it's the same thing, but it's really about feel. But we'll go with six eight here. It's an eight bar intro with a time signature of six eight. There's this little three note guitar uh, by itself, and then the whole band jumps in for eight bars with drums, bass, stereo guitar, and that guitar that starts the song off is playing an arpeggiated lick. I don't hear any acoustic at the top here, guys. I hear it come in in the verse. Uh, Is that correct? There's no acoustic? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... That's a great question. I, I... How do you remember? It's been 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> like, is there acoustic underneath the opening the opening guitar line? Is that what we're trying to remember? Well, just the intro before the before verse one starts. Yeah, because I can definitely hear acoustics in, in verse one, but I don't think it's at the top. Well, I mean, that's sort of what I was, I was getting at before is we went for it, you know? So once we got into the plant and we had Jerry and we had Carl and we, I think we had Larry Craig bringing us acoustic guitars, like, you know... That late 90s was a really great time to be a signed band. And it was like, well, yeah, of course we need like, we need three drum sets and we need 10 amps and we need every guitar that we can find in Marin County. Uh, Jerry had that, Jerry had that really good Martin, right? He had his acoustic that he loved. Yeah, he had like a vintage Martin that sounded amazing that we kind of put on everything. And I don't know if there's acoustic at the top of the song. I don't think there is. We're going to go with no, but we're going to say it comes in in the verse one here. And I got to tell you, this, this feel that you guys have managed to capture with this song going from the 6-8 and when it changes to 4-4 on pre-chorus 1, it is so jarring in one sense, you know, if you look at it on paper, but it works so effortlessly. That's tough to do because when you're going between time signatures and and, and you've done something really, really incredible here, it's really cool. I know it. It's a shame. A shame I can't show it. And I see it. I can see it now. But I'm so far below it. I think someone's laughing because you've probably never had your lyrics read to you before. It's it's very (laughs) uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the king of uncomfortable. Yeah. What's happening? What's happening here lyrically? What what are we saying? This song came about in a very random way. We, We had the concept for these little black backpack was what came up sort of in a in his we were jamming one day and it it was just a joke i i think i sang it we had been in san francisco out at bars you know and we that was when like every woman was wearing a little black backpack and i think we were just sort of hanging in the studio jamming and i think i just said it and the guys were like oh that's funny like we should write a song about a little black backpack and so it just sort of came about in this random way. And to be honest with you, like, I don't really know what the sort of main theme of this song is. It's, it feels like it's something about striving and, and feeling less than. <laughs> and I think maybe, maybe it's 
have, seeing kind of all of these people who are really fashion oriented and really trendy and really trying to like be something out on the scene in San Francisco. And maybe it's just kind of stemmed from that. And so I think that's kind of what I'm saying in that first verse. That's really cool that you admitted what you just admitted to. Very few people, myself included, I've had people ask me about songs and I'll just kind of make up something because I don't want to sound stupid. You're probably one of the first people that's ever said what you just said on this show. And I've done over 150 whatever episodes now. Um, just saying, yeah, they're just some words I wrote and I think they kind of mean this, but I really don't know. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thanks. I, I think that that's kind of... Uh... A lot of our songs are like that, maybe. I don't really think about themes and stuff as I'm writing. They just kind of come out, and then if they feel like they work, then they work, and maybe it means something to somebody. But um, And that might be also why like our music hasn't, hasn't connected you know, as widely as, as some other songwriters' music has. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, that that what you just said is a whole other episode we could get into because you can we could never predict that. That's just you know the the fact that uh, and I've said this to other guys too. It's like you know you guys had a hit at radio. That's that's amazing. You know most bands don't don't ever get to to have that hit, and it can be can be a blessing and a curse depending on how you look at it. But uh, verse one here, I love the first harmony we hear in the song, and I see it. That harmony is awesome. It's nice and loud it's right there and before we got rolling i was talking to luke you know because i research these episodes pretty well i go and look at live uh, performances of the song and in the early days guitarist john mcdermott did not sing uh the backing vocals and i was i was disappointed because the backing vocals are so killer in the song and i went and looked at some videos later on and and john uh sings now was that something that evolved or uh he got better as a singer yeah i think john historically you know, he's a great musician. He has a great ear. I think he just wasn't super comfortable singing uh, at the beginning. And then he and I worked quite a bit on, on harmonies and stuff as we uh, started to tour more and more. And, and really he put a lot of effort and time into it. And now he's a great singer. I mean, he can, he can hit anything and he, he definitely worked hard on that. That's awesome. I, you know, I've, seen a number of bands over the years they'll have these awesome harmonies you go see them live and it's just it, it's it's kind of lacking and missing I'm, I'm glad he's singing now because especially for this track there's so many cool harmonies love that harmony in verse one the drums bass and a slightly overdriven guitar panned left are here in the first verse and an acoustic guitar is there as well and is there an electric guitar that's ghosting with the acoustic i can't tell if that's a slap echo or something on there do you guys remember I think we need to go find the, the, the tape with the track listings on like there's <laughs> there exactly. storage somewhat. No, we don't have them. We have something. We might have the track list. And as you guys said, you guys were, were uh, you know, playing with all kinds of toys there uh, at the plant and you were just having, having a ball. So there, there, there very well could be uh, an electric guitar there. It, it, it sounds like it. The last line here, but I'm so far below it. The band stops completely with the instruments ringing out. And that's when it changes to 4-4. Four, four. How did that evolution come about? You know, you had mentioned that this is one of the songs that you were playing out live. And of course, it was on a previous record. You were seeing this audience reaction. And, you know, when you got an audience grooving and an audience dancing, okay, and, and this is definitely danceable, the top of this song, it's got a groove uh, and through the first verse. But when you get to the pre-chorus and it changes, the fact that it still all works together together how did that time change come about was it all in four four or all in six eight at one point probably out of necessity right so we had to 
we knew we liked the verse. We knew we liked the chorus. And it's funny. We had another song on our next album that's called Kick Some Ass that also changes. It goes from five, seven to four, four. And it's even harder live. And like anyone who plays it, especially on drums for the first time, it's like, wait, how do you do this? And, <laughs> but backpack's nice because it takes that big pause. And certainly um, when we did it live and when we still do it live, it's long, you know, and there's crowd work and it leaves itself wide open for a little bit of some hooting and hollering and some shots, possibly, if, if that's a moment where you need to take a sip of beer and get ready for the chorus. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's just, it just worked out and it it's a drama moment and you just wait. And it's nice for the band when we play it live because you have the vocal cue, like, you know, it, it leads it in so we can all hit that one really hard. And, um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's that little bit of drama that definitely came about more and more from just playing it for the, you know, five, six years. Right. And you need the pre-chorus in order to get to the chorus. There's no other way you, you, cause you, you had mentioned you love the feel of the verse. You love the feel of the chorus. How do we get there? And this part is so strange. It never sounded strange to me. This time signature, this song, I've heard it a ton. You, you, you still hear it on, on, on radio grocery stores. I hear the song all the time. And I, until I got it under the microscope here and I'm, I'm really, I'm going, wow, that's an abrupt switch. That's really crazy, but it works seamlessly. We changed the four four here for pre-chorus one. Don't wanna, don't wanna talk about it. Don't want to. Don't want to talk about it. I say why not. Don't want to think about it. I say there's got to be some good reason for your little black backpack. Up, smack, turn around. He's on his back and. <laughs> yeah, the and. The and re- it really sells it. It's the and that's the... Uh... Hook. I do like the and there. I, again, that's that's something that's kind of odd, but I like it. Hearing it like that, you know, because Luke does the falsetto, which, I don't know, is that deliberately supposed to be imitating a, the female voice in the narrative? But it doesn't It doesn't say consistent, does it? That's funny you bring that up, because that's a question I have written down here. Is that from the female narrative? It is, yeah. I mean, it definitely was, and that, that part was intended to sound like a female voice and be part of the female narrative. And I don't even really remember now why, <laughs> but... but um, I guess there's a conversation happening there, or maybe it's switching voices. I, I, I'd have to think back as to why we did that. But I do recall going to falsetto and making it kind of sound like a female voice intentionally. Well, the, the falsetto part, you know, it happens a number of times in this song. It, it's a hook. Every time this pre-chorus comes around, it is a hook. Uh, I've said this before. It's a hook within the song. You know, the, it, it's something that, that without it wouldn't wouldn't be the same tune. The vocals come in alone as we change times here. Don't want to. That's a vocal alone. And as we get into it, the, the lyric on the second line, I say, why not? That's falsetto. And I say, there's got. There's also falsetto there. And we get a harmony on the last line. Turn around. He's on his back. 
back and and you know I don't I'll almost make the argument here guys that the back half of this pre-chorus when everything starts to ramp up the bass kick drum come in on the line I say there's got to be some good reason the back half here you get the lyric little black backpack the title of the song it's almost like the chorus starts before the actual chorus does if that makes sense yeah illusion well kind of yeah because it, it gets heavy here and i think that the way you like there, there's some angst on that little black backpack the way that it's sung and it it just really launches the, the, this chorus perfectly um there's a build-up on the floor tom kick and snare on the last line to launch into chorus one turn around he's on his back and don't want to tangle with you i'd rather tangle with him i think i'm gonna bash his head in Concern you except that you don't expect to get your bloody black back 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 Don't want to tangle with you. I'd rather tangle with him. I think I'm gonna bash his head in. That's great. <laughs> and this shouldn't concern you except that just don't expect to get your bloody black backpack back i had to slow down on that last line it's like uh those little uh tongue twisters you used to hear as a kid it's hard to say there there was always question about what this chorus is really saying is this uh is it a guy taking the backpack i mean the obvious sort of thing is there's a relationship here there's a jealous boyfriend takes the backpack from the, the girlfriend beats up some guy with the backpack gives it back or you know doesn't give it back i guess in this case but then there was always the sort of the, the British, like, are you saying bloody black, black backpack, like bloody hell? Um, or is it literally a bloody backpack covered in blood? Um, and so that was always one thing that people kind of sunk their, uh, their brains into, I guess, when they're trying to kind of analyze the song and figure out what it's about. That's really interesting you say that, because I didn't even think about that till now. You know, if you guys were British, I would have for sure thought it was, you know, bloody, like bloody hell. Uh, in this instance, like, you know, backpacks, you know, especially women have makeup and, you know, I don't know, glass, hard things in their purse that it could be bloody if you smack someone with it. When I think about it, you know, at that time, so this was mid nineties, there weren't cell phones yet. And so there was just this constant joke of like, well, what are these things are too small for a book? I don't know what you keep in a backpack normally. And so, yeah, it's like, what is it? And they were just, people were making fun of them. They were a joke that everyone did. And I think we just speculated like, well, what if you used it to beat up some other paramour or whatever in a bar scene, like romantic triangle, Maybe that's what they're for. You know, that's what I always think about. It's just a funny little scene. You know, you can see it. And like, that's that's how I've always interpreted it personally when I think about it. Like, I can visualize the, the small vignette of the whole thing. Hey, everybody, don't go anywhere. We got lots more with Luke and Greg from Stroke Nine after a few words from our sponsors. I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts.
And now, back to the show. And Luke, did you sing all the backup vocals on this, on the harmonies? I did, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, again, I, I love the harmonies. I love where you went with them here. And did did Jerry push you on the harmonies? Did you have this all worked out in your head? I know there was another version that I, I have not heard yet, and I'm definitely going to take a listen to that. But were the harmonies the same, or did, did he push you when he had you in there? Do you recall? We worked the harmonies quite a bit. I, I definitely spent... I remember spending a lot of time like in a, in another little studio with just with, I think mainly Carl, um, who was the engineer and just like trying lots of different harmony ideas until we got the ones that we liked. So I don't think those harmonies were locked from the previous version. I think I probably had ideas, but, um, if you go and compare them there, they might be different. I'd have to listen, uh, again myself actually. I love, though, how the song builds. You know, the harmonies are pretty sparse here in Chorus 1. We get uh, Don't Want to Tango with You, a harmony on that line. I think I'm going to bash his head in. We get a harmony there, and we get a harmony on Just Don't Expect to Get. Uh, later in the song, there, the chorus, too, is, is every line's a harmony on it. But I like how it's used sparsely here so the song could build uh, later on. At the uh, last lyric here, your bloody black backpack back. The band stops. Everything rings out as we get that three-note guitar riff from the intro to take us back into that three, four, or six, eight time signature with an eight-bar re-intro. Again, this part's kind of jarring, how it just kind of comes back in, but you fall back into verse two, and somehow you've made it work. Now I'm curious to go back and see what we have in the way of demos, if we always had those long intros and or if we started vocals more, because playing it live, and especially later once it started to get a little more popular, people have a lot of fun on the chorus, and it is... I would argue it's not quite a dance song as much as a, a jump up and down bounce song, which is is a certain type of dancing. But um, you know, it was always there's always a little bit of a calm down moment after every chorus, and that I, I assume that happened while we were live, and then before the lyrics, you just need another moment to sort of reset before the second verse. So yeah, that's why that's probably that little pause there. And and it's just, you know, again, a nice little break. Yeah, and I, I think it's also amazing in a sense that the song worked ultimately when you got it in the studio. Because I can attest, there's songs on my, my band's first record. Our first record was basically a demo. We were kids, where I go back, and it's just all over the place time-wise because nothing was to a click, and that's how we were playing the songs live. Parts would just stop and go into another time, into another feel. out. It was kind of breakneck, you know? And a lot of times when you go into the studio to record a track that you've been doing that with live, you can't recreate it it's too weird and it doesn't work and and obviously it worked here brilliantly so right out of that eight bar reintro we get into uh verse two time signature changes i'm gonna read these lyrics and uh we'll uh, we'll break them down i can feel you yes i can what about that don't you understand and i sent you it's something sensual but it's less than i planned very poetic 
It's beautiful. <laughs> I, I think one one thing hearing them, hearing you read them back is something we did a lot back then, or Luke did, or whatever was a lot more alliteration and wordplay. So you know, what was it? Sensual to what's the other word you do there? <laughs> or Sen- entangle, sensu, sensual. Yeah. yeah, entangle, entangle. Well, and bloody, bloody black back, back, back. I mean, the 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 B alliteration there is just it's kind of a no brainer. We had a song on the the album our self-released one that was called refrigerator that had a lot of lot of clever wordplay and even like other songs that nasty little thoughts so it was definitely something that you were doing more lyrically it's just funny to hear them not screamed <laughs> in my ear you guys aren't the first people that just trip out when they because i've never had my lyrics read back to me until my producer had me on for an episode of my own show and it was definitely trippy it's like whoa this is so strange because you don't think about them like that you just never never have them uh spoken to you but we get harmonies here in verse two on what about that don't you understand and it's less than i planned the band stops again at the end here the instruments ring out as the time signature switches back to four four don't wanna, don't wanna talk about it. I say why not? Don't wanna think about it. I say there's got to be some good reason for your little black backpack. Up, oh, smack, turn around, he's on his back hand. Don't wanna take Was there any talk here at pre-chorus two or switching, switching up the lyrics? You know, a lot of times we'll want to differentiate here, bring in more information, or, or was that pre-chorus always the same lyrically? I don't think we ever talked about changing about doing that in this song because that was such a strong part. I mean, we might have experimented with it. I don't recall doing that. We, you know, we usually do. We usually do try to have some variety in in pre-choruses, but um, I, I think for this one, it just was like it was just was what it was. Yeah, and I think too, you know with the chorus here, there's a lot of information happening. It's not that you're repeating one line over and over in the chorus. So there is a lot of information coming at you here. And well, yeah, also I, I think you also have to realize, you know, this was mid to late nineties. This was dot com bubble one. And our fans were so drunk that we didn't <laughs> want to burden them with learning a whole nother set of lyrics. Like we really just wanted them by the end of the song to be able to sing the whole song, the whole chorus all the way through. And sometimes as performers, we like to get heady, you know, an artsy. So we'll be like, yeah, I'm going to change the third pre-chorus. And then you go play live and you look out and they're mouthing the words to the first pre-chorus. You're like, why did I do that? Exactly. So, yep. I totally get that. Well, chorus two, it's the same lyric and instrumentation as chorus one, except we get a harmony on I'd Rather Tangle With Him. We get a harmony on the line and this shouldn't concern. We get a harmony on you expect that on the back half and the whole last line your bloody black backpack back we get a harmony there that's not on chorus one And then we get into I, what I feel is, I think this is my favorite part of the song. The whole song's catchy from start to finish, but this bridge is awesome.
You're trying to find a reason for the way you feel tonight. Your mind is lined with layers of lead. Have you heard one thing that I've said? There's harmonies on each of these lines. The harmony on the word tonight is awesome. That note that you go to there, Luke, is killer. The guitar solo is really cool here, too, because it actually starts on the back half of line two. Your mind is lined with layers of lead. And then on the last line, the guitar solo goes on for an extra eight bars. And uh, there's some really cool dissonant bends and uh, notes here in this solo. It's barely uh, hand off to the right and was this guitar solo the, the same that was there prior or is this this something new for this recording this was new this solo john's like a shredder he can play he's a really good guitar player he's a really creative and he's really good at improvising and he just came up with this one in the studio um you know i'm sure he did a bunch of takes and we probably comped it together but and that's how we got to to this final version. But um, yeah, it turned out great. It really lifts uh, when you when you hear it. It does lift, and I love when we come back to pre-chorus three, the next part, because everything dips down here. Uh, it's a light ride cymbal and a light tom work uh, on the drums. Stereo guitars are playing eighth notes here, so kind of uh, uh, takes on a little different feel we haven't heard in the song up to this point. Don't wanna talk about it. These guitars are not as big as the stereo guitars in the choruses. That's why these are great, in my opinion. You get the drum build up here at the end, like pre-chorus one and pre-chorus two, but the stereo guitars sound really big when chorus three hits. We get the same falsetto here. Uh, again, I'm calling that a, a really big hook in this song. It's not the same song to me without it. You get that great harmony. Turn around, he's on his back, and to lift us into chorus three, which is... A double chorus. He's on his back and I wanna tangle with you. I'd rather tangle with him. I think I'm gonna bash his head in. This shouldn't concern you except that. Just don't expect to get your body back, 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 back. I wanna tangle with you. We get the same uh, the same lyrics the first time. The second time around uh, on I'd Rather Tangle With Him, the lead vocal goes up an octave. There's no harmony, but uh, the lead vocal here sounds doubled. Halfway through, there's like this and another guitar lead overdub, panned off slight right. Uh, it's a really cool moving part that comes in. And then at the very end... The whole band slows down for your bloody black backpack back and all the instruments fade out. And you really needed this double chorus here at the end to me. It, it had to be doubled. Was it, was it always like that? Yeah, I think. I have to go listen to, to, to Bumper to Bumper. But yeah, and wait, do we do the stop on the album too? We do do the stop, right? Halfway through the second chorus or we don't? Is that something we only do live now? No, no, there's no stop. Sorry, I clearly haven't listened to Backpack recently uh, recorded. Actually, that's not true. 
because it's always on. I mean, everywhere I go, like, you know, malls, shopping centers. Yeah, I think it's always been the double chorus for sure. I think we've always absolutely done that because we take it over the top. Yeah, and I remember there's that one guitar that goes really high there at the end. I remember, I distinctly remember that was my idea, I think. And I sold Jerry on it. And then Jerry is a big fan of like one note, droney, like things like that. I think Jerry actually played it. I think I think we let Jerry play that one. But yeah, like I said, when we do it live, we do a big pause, a big stop, like right on what word do we stop on? Bloody. Oh, just yeah, at the end of the first repeat. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when artists, and I've heard this before, and I and I know this, I've just just heard it a bunch that they have this song and they maybe been playing it live maybe they released it on an earlier album like you guys have and the record gets made and then the label or whoever they go to pick a single and it isn't the song that they thought you know for some reason some other you know cream rose to the top and it's like everyone's got their eyes on this single when the album was done, I noticed the song is uh, track three out of out, out of the twelve songs on the album, and, and usually the singles are, are front loaded. The first, uh, you know, three or four songs. Was it obvious to everybody, your A and R person, to Jerry, to to Rupert, to the guys in the band, that this was the single? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we got signed because of that song. Like, it was that was the whole thing from the first time we recorded it to playing it, to all the getting our lawyer, getting the record deal, everything like that. It was all backpack, which is crazy. So yes, it was always going to be, I can't imagine. we. Maybe there was some cockamamie like, well, we'll, we'll warm up the crowd with a strong single as well, and then we'll hit them with the big one. But no, that, I, that didn't get very far if that conversation did happen. I don't recall. That's interesting. You guys, you know, you guys put all your all your cards on this song, and and it, and it worked out. And, and like I said, sometimes you just don't see that. That's really awesome. I, I have a vivid, pretty vivid picture in my mind of back then when when you did mixes. Well, you, you would have to do like an ISDN line from whoever was mixing the song, and everybody would go into the studio to hear because there were you know you could only do isdn like in certain studios and so tom lord algae was the guy who mixed this song and he's like a really massive mixing engineer even today but he was probably the premier mixing engineer for for like the 90s rock late 90s rock sound that everybody kind of learned to love uh especially his drum sounds him and his brother mixed less than jake records they yeah. mixed everybody <laughs> they had like a monopoly on the market i think <laughs> tom and chris and they and they both like had this crazy fee structure where you know they would charge you obviously for their their time to mix the song and then they would also get points on every song they mixed and so they have this like back-end mailbox money thing that's probably i mean i can't even imagine how much money they've made over the years and with their catalog but Anyway, so I have this very vivid memory of standing in the studio. We were at the plant. Tom was, you know, wherever he is in, in South Beach in Florida. And he was like, all right, here it comes. And he, he pushes play. And it like, you hear it over, you know, the mains in a recording studio, like the plant. And they have these incredible speakers and sound systems, of course. And it was just like, wow, we were completely floored. And 
And then when, once we sent that down to um, Daniela and Jolene, who are our A&R people at Universal, they were beside themselves. Like they could not believe how it turned out. They were so happy. They were like, this is a hit. We're going, you know, it was, so the, to the answer your question, yes, that was like the first song we recorded, the first song we got mixed and they were, they were just like, all right, it's on, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and so, yes, that was our first single. <laughs> yeah. That's so great. And, and, and like I said, you know, uh, and, and I've said this before and, and I've had fans of mine, actually, I went on, on, on a, a tour recently with my band and, and they're like, yeah, let's listen to your show and you can kind of put yourself down. I just tell my fans like it is. I've always been straight up. Like my band's never had a hit. We haven't. We've had a great career. We play to people all over the world. I'm totally stoked. I love it. But man, there's not many bands. There's only so many spots at radio. There's only so many spots you can give out. So congratulations. Thank you very much. The funny thing about Backpack, too, is like people will be like, Stroke Nine sucks. You know, like everyone sucks and everyone says that every band sucks. And then they'll always be like, but Backpack was pretty cool. Like Backpack's Backpack's a really good song. I mean, you guys suck. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. You're a terrible band, but Backpack is a great song. And it's like, all right, yeah, that's cool. I agree. Thank you. It's like our really slow song my band has. It's like people come to like, you know, my mom doesn't like your music, but she loves that one song. It's like, thanks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, listen, I want to thank both of you for sitting in with us today and uh, give, giving us your time. And before we break, is there anything you'd like to leave uh, everyone listening at home with? What you got coming up? We are not dead yet. Um, so, yes, we are still a band. Uh, we still play um, mainly around where we live here in Northern California, we are still continuously putting out music. And so, you know, not a ton of fanfare, but we have put out in the last two and a half years, we've put out probably 20 new songs or something like that. And so, um, so cruise by our Spotify profile one day and see if anything works out for you. Luke, do you have anything else to add about the current state of stroke nine? Uh, Less Than Jake rocks. Love Less Than Jake. So, thank you, Chris. Hey everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Greg and Luke from Stroke 9. But don't go anywhere, we got lots more coming up, like the band you might not know in our rap segment, after a few words from our sponsors. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Hey, Chris Ophalli is here. You know, the producer of the podcast that you're listening to right now. Did you know that I also host a music podcast? It's called One Hit Thunder, and it's a weekly show all about one-hit wonders. We have great guests, and we discuss one one-hit wonder artist each week. Some of the songs are great, some of them are terrible, but either way, the show is always pretty freaking good. I know, I'm biased because I host it. But seriously, go subscribe to One Hit Thunder right now. I promise you'll like it. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. 
If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to band you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Respite, a female fronted band out of Riverside, California. All of the members of the band are currently in high school and they started learning their instruments and forming the band during the COVID-19 lockdown. Pretty cool. They've been playing shows all over Southern California and they have influences from punk to ska, metal, and classic rock. Here's a snippet of their song, Punk Invasion. Chris and Chris. So, Chris, it is a real feat to be able to switch time signatures in a song, make it sound effortless, and on top of that, have it turn into a hit song. That's a real feat. I'm just shocked. I'm amazed by it. Again, I, I know there's other songs that are like this that I've heard. I can't off the top of my head think of them right now. Uh, until I got this song under the microscope and really analyzed it, I had no idea. It's it's jarring. It shouldn't work, but it does. I've never done that. I've never switched time signatures in a song. I I wouldn't know how to 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 go about that. It would be it'd be so foreign to me. I was going to be the first thing I was going to ask you is less than Jake ever switch time signatures in a song. And I don't remember that happening. Punchline has definitely done it a lot, but none of them have been hits. <laughs> you know, we do it. We like to be wild and crazy with the time signatures sometimes, but they definitely weren't hit songs. Um, it's interesting, Chris. Also, this song features parts from the female perspective, which kind of reminds me of a past Krista Makes a Podcast episode. Yes, I'm talking about, you're nodding your head, Teenage Dirtbag also does that, which I think is pretty neat. I almost said something during the episode. That's the exact thing I thought, which I believe Teenage Dirtbag, was it 2000? Yeah, it was after. Was it 99? It was after this okay. song, yeah. Okay, okay, but right around the same time, which, uh, which kind of... Kind of was interesting, uh, you know, same time period, modern rock radio, and, and you had that, uh, that same kind of trick happen. Pretty cool. Yeah, and this was a case where the song was kind of the guiding force of everything. We've had episodes before where it was like, ah, we didn't know which song was going to be the single. Well, this was the song that got the band signed. They knew this was the song. That's pretty cool to have like that, that guiding light the, the whole time. You know? Oh yeah, they they pushed all their chips to the front of the table. They were like, "This is it." I mean, they demoed this song a ton. They had played it out and road tested it live. They then had it on a previous record. They go and record it the whole time. It's like, "This is still the song. This is still the song." And I've heard that before. I even mentioned it to the guys. I've heard that being the case. And then they go make the record, and the song just kind of ends up, uh, you know, more towards the bottom of of everybody's uh everybody's favorite yeah but not in this case man this song did become a hit the album went platinum that's a pretty incredible story also i like the part i always like hearing this part because i always like this in my experience and i'm sure you have too chris of hearing the mix back and being like oh my god being blown away by it everyone knowing it's a hit from the a and r people to the band themselves that's a really 
exciting moment. I mean, I've been excited just about my song sounding awesome. Not, not that they were going to necessarily be a hit, but to know that you have all the right pieces on the right label to have that chance at having a hit. And it was. Uh huh. Well, and again, you know, a ton of bands were getting their records mixed by Tom Lord Algae, one of the best in the business, him and his, him and his brother. Uh, but not all of them were hits. And I've talked to Tom uh, about this. I said, do you know when a song's a hit when you're mixing it? And he said, sometimes. He says, sometimes I'm surprised. Sometimes I don't even know what is going to connect with the public and, and, and resonate. But you know, other times it's, it's just hit me over the head. It's like, yeah, this is obvi- obviously a hit. And that's what they felt uh, that they had here. I, I love how they gave it to their A&R. Uh, I think they had two women uh, representing them as their A&R person. And uh, they loved it. They're like, ah, oh, it's, it's, it's a hit. They're, they're, they're freaking out. Something I don't remember is getting a line in the studio to, and this would have been dial-up, to convert the audio back then so that you could hear it. So Tom's down in Miami. They're out in San Francisco hearing the mix. We were still FedExing cassettes, okay, <laughs> o- over overnighting right. cassettes at that point from California to get to get the mixes. So I thought that was interesting. I don't remember bands doing it, but I evidently they did. And, Chris, one more thing I want to talk about with this song you brought it up to him that that little black backpack back is kind of like a tongue twister yeah and i think that that's part of what makes this song a hit that's fun to sing it's fun to say we actually did an episode of one hit thunder about this song where our guest was john hampson from nine days who's friends with stroke nine and they've toured together and stuff but we talked about that on there too that the fact that that is so fun to say and so fun to sing is part of this song's appeal. I mean, to me, it is for sure. It's that imagery of like, <laughs> I never thought of that bloody, what they were talking about, bloody in the English use of it versus the bloody of having yeah. blood on you. I always just pictured it being violence, <laughs> you know, for, for lack of a better term. Um, but yeah, I think that the the tongue twister aspect of the song is part of what made it a hit too shelly sells seashells by the seashore yeah i mean it's just yeah and that and that uh he might have had a hard time uh in front of the mic singing that line i might have had to do it a couple times it's definitely definitely is a tongue twister but something that's not a tongue twister chris is chrisdemakes.com if you go there you can sign up and you can get episodes of the after party where we i don't know we talk about a little bit of everything and then for the price of a cup of coffee a month you can help chris and i support the show that you listen to and love each week chrisdemakes.com please check it out and give us uh Give us some help. I think you're getting a little tongue twisted there. I think uh, explaining the after party is uh, twisting your tongue a little bit. But yes, KristaMakes.com is where you can go to join our supporting cast. Help out the podcast. Help us continue making the show and get a bonus episode every week. We'd really appreciate it. Absolutely. And please give me a follow on Instagram at less than Christy. Want to thank this week's guests. Yes, plural guests, Luke Esterkin and Greg Geldner. And we'll see you next week. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, 
but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.